If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 11, where we've got one final part of our origin story that we're looking at in Genesis this fall. Uh, And that is really the origins of nations, cultures, and really even language itself. Uh, In chapter 10 that we just heard, read, um, chapter 10 sets it all up. This chapter that we just heard um, is known as the Table of Nations. Um, What this chapter is doing and all the names um, is it is sketching out a map of the ancient world. You've got 70 nations represented in that chapter. For those of you who are counting and you got 70, good job. You are really paying attention. Um, And for the rest of us, the point of all of these, Shem is the father of this person, is the father of this person, and these are the tongues and the cultures and the peoples. The purpose of all of that is what Genesis chapter 10 is saying is that all of humanity, all the peoples on the earth that um, they were aware of at that time, and probably 70s around number representing completion, what it's saying is all the nations on the earth draw their origins back to Noah and his family. In other words, Genesis chapter 10 is claiming that all humanity has a common origin. Um, and, and this is not new. The Bible's been saying this since page one, when we started in September in this book, um, that on page one, the Bible says all humans are made in the image of God, um, that God made the first man and woman, and that they started having babies who had babies. These are the generations of, and on, and on, and on we go. The point of all of this in Genesis 1 and Genesis 10 is to say that if you trace your family tree far enough up the tree, 23 and me might not get there, but if you go all the way back to the beginning, you will find that we are all family. Now, that might sound like an obvious statement to you living on this side of the human genome project. I think this is largely regarded as common knowledge in our world, but what you need to realize is when this book was written, that was an incredibly shocking statement. Uh, In the ancient world, almost every culture believes some form of this, that our people are descended from the gods and everyone else are kind of lesser beings. And so we have a right to conquer and to exist, and they do not have the same right to conquer and exist. And in fact, if you know history, that attitude, um, it's maybe been cleaned up with language, but has been used throughout history to oppress peoples that we find inconvenient and unimportant. This is the world in which Genesis steps onto the scene and says, No, 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 you've got that all wrong. It's not that you're from the gods and the others are not. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 10 are saying that we are all family, that we all have a common origin. Uh, And this is, um, I want to keep pressing on this in Genesis as we kind of wrap up our journey in the first 11 chapters today, that this is such a life-giving idea. If we take this idea about the common origin of humanity seriously, this is the end of racism um, and of ethnic genocide. This is um, problems that weren't just problems in the ancient world, but problems in our world today. If we, because here's why we keep pressing on the image of God in this series. When we realize they were all a part of the same family, it changes how we relate to one another. It has to, when we see the person out there that we think is our enemy, we realize, no, that's ultimately our family, that we are image bearers, that we are all coming from the same origins. It changes how we have to relate to one another. This is why Genesis doesn't just say it in chapter 1 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, but it's going to say it on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, because there are truths that you and I need to keep hearing again and again and again. And so this is a truth that Genesis has insisted on in these opening chapters. Um, And so if we can just rally around that and say, okay, yes, we believe the Bible, that all humans are ultimately family, that we share a common origin, that we shouldn't treat one group as preferred over the others because we are all ultimately uh, God's family and God's creation. Um, That is a life-giving idea, but that idea poses an obvious question. Um, And the question is, if we're all the same family, then why did our family split into separate nations? right? Like, um, why do we have all of these cultures if we're all ultimately from one family? Why do these people do things differently than others? Why do these people seem to value timeliness next to godliness, and these people seem to value being present over being on time? Like, why do different cultures do different things certain ways? Why aren't there so many different languages in the world? Like, I have a hard enough time speaking English, as you can tell. Why do we have all of these languages? Why do we have all of these nations? You know, I don't know if you know this, but if you look at a map, there's lines on a map. There's not lines on the face of the earth. 
where did these dividing lines come from? Why do we have nations and cultures and different language if we're all ultimately one family of God's image bearers? And that is what chapter 11 is here to answer for us today. So you ready to look at it? All right, Genesis chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So um, the story begins by saying, uh, dear reader, is one of my seminary professors would say. Anytime he says the Bible's trying to talk to you, I always thought this was a helpful phrase. He would say, dear reader. Uh, the author wants us to know, chapter 11, verse 1, dear reader, there was a time that was not like today. Um, there was a time um, where there was one cultural grouping, not many. Where there was one language, not many. So in other words, chapter 11 is backing us up before the genealogy of chapter 10, before the table of nations, and saying, how do we get to this place where the earth is a diverse place? If we're all one family, how did we get there? Chapter 11 is going to tell us. It says, there was a time that was not like today where the whole earth had one common language, and this common language is what united them and what held them together. Now, I don't know how often you think about this, but language is a truly amazing thing. Uh, language is the means by which we take an idea and express it to one another. Um, and so because of that, like if I'm trying to uh, communicate something, I've got to use words to speak it out loud, to, to share that, to be understood by another person. And so what that means is language is really the key to making intimacy possible, to being able to hear from one another, learn from one another, know and love one another as we've talked about in Genesis. Now, um, you could say you don't need language to do that. You could use your body to do that. You could um, kind of say, like, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or your mic's not on. Like, you, you, you could do that, but if you've ever played charades, you know the limits of that, right? Like, if all we had were body motions and didn't have words to express ourselves, our intimacy would be very shallow. But God has given us the gift of language to be able to describe the deep things inside of us. And in fact, what I'll say after um, eight years of marriage is I have learned um, that intimacy is undercut and trouble begins when instead of using your words and asking someone what they're thinking, when we just assume, I don't need language, I know what you're thinking, and I'll fix your problem right now. That's when intimacy is undercut. Any married folks in the room? And so here's the idea. Language is amazing. It gives us this, it makes intimacy possible. Um, and it's a great gift of God. He's made us as speaking creatures who are designed to communicate to God in prayer and in conversation with one another. So language, it's a huge part of what it means to be human, which is why I think there is um, few experiences more frustrating and disorienting than not being able to speak the same language as another person. Have you ever been there? Some of the married folks are nodding in the room. Someone said, yes, up here. Yeah, maybe you've traveled. Like, um, when Karen and I got married, we went to China um, to visit kind of her extended family. And what I learned on that trip is, I, I didn't realize this, how much I depend on being able to speak and speak to others to have a sense of belonging in the world, to have a sense of uh, relationship. There's just something about even Karen who can speak beautifully in multiple languages and translate. There's something about going through a translator that it feels like I don't know you like I want to know you. I want to connect with you on a deeper level. It, it can be disorienting. It can undermine relationship. And I'll, I'll even say this, that um, after several days there, uh, I thought I was picking up a few phrases. And so I thought, I'm going to try this out. Um, and so where better to try it out than a train station, which is basically like an airport, like in terms of their security over there. And so I get in, Karen's ahead of me, I pull out my passport, and I try out the Hingaoxing, Jindamni, and uh, the uh, security officer starts speaking very quickly to me. And so I'm like, oh no, what have I done? Are they about to arrest me? I don't know what's going on. Karen comes back to my rescue and says, he's saying your Chinese isn't bad. So I, I kind of ruined that one by my own little freak out there. But the point is... Um, it's not only important to have language, it's quite important to speak the same language if we want to have deep relationship, if we want to have intimacy, if we want to have meaningful partnership. 
And what Genesis 11 is saying is there was a time in the world where all the humans spoke the same language, where they shared the same common framework of words and meaning that they could all connect with one another. And from this shared framework, uh, they accomplish a lot. We read that they come to the land of Shinar, uh, and they say, let's build a city, which we're going to learn in a few verses. It it becomes the city of Babylon. Uh, Your translation might say Babel, but the land of Shinar, this is where Daniel and his friends will be carried into exile later. This is the land of Babylon. And I point that out because um, Babylon is much like Canaan that we talked about in the text last week, that they're one of the big players in the story of the Bible from here on out. Um, Babylon's not the good guys in the biblical story, but what's really interesting to see is we get their origin story in our text here. We see where um, the first city in Babylon began, and what's interesting is it doesn't start off bad. It says that people come off the boat, they uh, move into the land of Shinar, they come to this fertile plain, and they say, hey, let's build a city. And they invent new technology to do this. They take mud from the ground, and they bake it into bricks. Um, which I think is really interesting. You know, if you've ever tried to like take natural elements like rocks and trees and build them up, you you know that the the limits on what you can create are kind of limited um, because, you know, rocks and trees were not designed to be perfectly stacked together like Lego blocks. But what these, you can tell I'm not very handy that my mind goes, Legos! Um, But what these guys do is they take mud from the ground and they bake it into these even bricks that they could put together that will fit together just right to stack more weight. Maybe they had some engineers on hand. And what they do is they're able to build the world's first skyscraper. They build a higher tower than had ever been built before. This is technological advancement. Um, They're building a great city. And um, just like we saw in the first city several weeks back, when you put a lot of image bearers together... Uh, the creativity that abounds when people work together is, is new technology develops, new technology forms, and that's what's going on here. Is they, they build bricks, and we should really be thankful for these guys in the land of Shinar, because I don't know if there's bricks in the building here, but I'm pretty sure like sheetrock and this stuff didn't just naturally form from the ground. These are our forerunners here. These guys come up with new technology to build a great city, and particularly the text tells us they're concerned with building a great tower at the center of this city. Um, They want to have this very high monument with its uh, head in the clouds, as it were, um, that would be this great monument. And this is why they have to invent new technology, because I I suppose rocks can't get you there. But bricks that are more uh, stable and perfectly shaped can get you there. So um, we're seeing technological development. The question is, why are they doing all of this? Why are these guys baking mud from the ground when humanity had survived without that in the past? Why are they inventing and creating? Well, um, verse 4 tells us their motivation. Verse 4, God gives us insight into what they were saying. It says, uh, these are the folks in Babylon. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So um, in that verse, verse 4, we see two motivations to their city building. Number one, they want to be great. Um, A lot of people will approach this story and talk about the Tower of Babel, like humanity was trying to build their way back to heaven, to reach their way back to God, which I'll just tell you, that's a popular view. Uh, I think it reads a little too much into the text. Um, Because what's interesting is God is nowhere in the picture in these first four verses. God seems to be nowhere in the thoughts of the city builders. It seems less to me like they're trying to build their way and earn their way back to God. And it seems more like their concern is what they said. Is they want to build a big tower so that their names will be made great. It seems like to me, um, I don't know, you can say that for yourself. I, I, I wouldn't like bank your Christianity on this one. But it seems to me like the popular idea of them trying to earn their way back to God is maybe slightly off. And maybe the main idea is they want to make their name great because that's what the text says. It says they want to make a big tower so that people will go, these guys are awesome. These guys are great. Look at what they can build. These guys are really great. Now let me ask you a question. Um, Assume I'm right on that. Um, Or yeah, let's just assume I'm right for a moment. Is it a sin to want to be great? Man, you guys know I'm tricky. You're like, I'm going to wait for someone next to me to see how they answer. 
no. I've got to know there. I'll take no. Um, here's why I'll say no. Because if you go to Genesis chapter 12, uh, one page over, we won't get there till next year when we come back to Genesis. But if you want to get a little sneak peek, flip over to Genesis chapter 12. You'll see God come to a man named Abram and promise to make his name great. So God wants our name to be great. Jesus spends a lot of time teaching and training his disciples on true greatness. So, no, it's not wrong to want to be great. So, um, you know, people will pick on them like they wanted to make their name great. Look at these guys. And it's like there's something in there that I think is a good desire. A desire for greatness. God made us as his image bearers. He made us to do great things. So no, it's not a sin to want to be great. Now the second motivation I think is a little bit trickier. You you have to think about this one for a bit. They say, um, so we want to build this great city to make a name for ourselves. And then number two, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, can you imagine why they might not want to be dispersed over the face of the earth? I told you this one's tricky. Um, you got to put yourself in an ancient mindset. Um, in the ancient world, um, they didn't have all the technology that we have today. They didn't have Instacart that would drop things off at your door. Um, they didn't have Starbucks on every corner like we've talked about. In the ancient world, um, if you were spread out, you were unsafe. You could easily be picked off by a predator or by a raiding army. But if you would stick together, there were safety in numbers. There were resources in numbers. And so really what I think is going on here is a desire for safety. Um, That they don't want to be spread out across the land because that would put them in a dangerous place. They want to gather together and build a city. And um, here's something I was thinking about this week. I wonder if the tower might be related to this concern for safety because, uh, you know, the whole world just flooded. And so, again, this is, um, I'm going to do some speculation with you today, but I wonder if their motivation in building the tower wasn't, yes, we want to make our name great, but we also want to hedge our bets in case it rains really hard again. That uh, if the floods come, let's build a really tall tower that that when the floods come, we can get all the way up in there and we'll be safe. Uh, Again, I want to separate out from you my speculation and what the text is saying. I just think that's interesting to think about. Have you ever thought about that with Babel? Maybe you're smarter than me. That only occurred to me this week, that it might be related to the flood. Um, Here's what the text definitely tells us. They want to make their name great, so greatness is their motivation. And number two, they're out for safety. The whole point of a city is that you, um, the word city in Hebrew here, it's not referring to like a metropolis like we have today. It's talking about um, some fortified place that has walls and marks it off from the places around it. So uh, whether or not the tower was actually about, I could tell I totally lost you on that one, whether or not the tower was about hedging their bets against the flood, we know that the point of a city at this time was safety. To have the walls to keep the animals and the predators and the armies out to where you can be safe on the inside. So they've got these twin motivations, greatness, which we already said is not inherently sinful. And now I want to ask you, is it a sin to want to be safe? No, you guys were much faster on that. That's right. It is not a sin to want to be safe because, in fact, if you read your Bible, you're going to see on repeat, God promised to be a refuge and a shield and a source of safety to all who would trust in him. And frankly, for us to be made in God's image, I think so much of what it means to be human is to look out for the safety of others. To care more about the safety of others than we care about ourselves. It's a very godly thing to want the safety of other people because it's something that God cares for. It's something that God offers. And so, no, I don't think it's a sin to want to be safe. Here's the point in everything I'm saying with their motivations in verse 4. The point I want to draw is the Babylonian desire is not inherently sinful. Kind of the, the Babylonian dream, if we can call it that. The reason they built this city, the center of what they're doing. The Babylonian dream isn't sinful. They want to build a great city where everybody gets along and everybody is safe and everybody has a great time. These are things that the Bible commends as worthy goals. The problem is not the goal or the hope or the dream. The problem is how they approach that hope and that goal and that dream. See, the problem is, as I've said, God is missing from the story entirely. They don't mention God in their thoughts. It's let us build these things. Let us provide these things. Let us make our own name great. Let us provide safety and security for ourselves and our generation. See, the the story before us today represents the human attempt to build heaven, a good thing, without God, which really doesn't work. Um, Or in the language that we use on Christmas Eve, the story of Babel is really the story of trying to have the kingdom of God without the king. 
We take all the things that the Bible is saying good and valuable and right, and we want those things, but then we try to cut God out of the picture and say, we want your stuff and not you. And, and I would submit to you, I think that that's a fundamental flaw. That's a fundamental problem we're going to see in this story. And this is why I think this story is so important for us today, because we live in a culture that is doing the very same thing. We live in a day that um, our culture, at least here in the West, is living on the fumes of what's been called Christendom. This like thousand year period of history where um, God and the Bible kind of formed the worldview of the entire culture. And so I'm not saying everyone was Christian. Certainly that wasn't the case. But the prevailing worldview was the biblical worldview that we started week one of this series with. Um, but we have shifted away from that in the last hundred years ago uh, or so, particularly with the warp speed in recent years, where we're shifting away from Christendom into something new, but our culture is still living off the fumes of Christendom. And here's what I mean by that. Our culture still values several of the things that the Bible says are good things. Um, like, l- let me give you an example of just as I'm interacting with people, I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's really interesting that our culture values human rights. Um, That is a distinctly Christian concept that goes back to page one and the idea of the image of God and humanity and us all being family like we talked about. This is a carryover of Christendom into our culture. So though our culture is secular, our culture values this thing that the Bible says is good. But what we are doing by and large is we are trying to get human rights without God. And, and so this is what leads to kind of the confusion of our day where um, I look out at the world is I interact with people and what I see are um, people that are arguing for human rights. But what they're um, doing in order to get to human rights are attacking one group of humans in order to lift up another group of humans. As if human rights were some zero-sum game that if we want to lift this group up, we have to push this group down. This is what happens when you try to get heaven without God or the kingdom without the king. And so I've, I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it because I think that we need to see the inconsistency in it. You, we have people in our world today um, that will cry out for racial justice. Which this story today should really embolden that cry. We should see that this matters to God as the people of God. We need to see justice for all people is valuable, particularly where um, one race has been elevated over another. We need to see in this story that that's unacceptable to the Lord, and we need to be God's people that fight for that. So I'm not saying that that's the wrong cry, but what I'm saying is you'll have people that will cry out for racial justice, and then they'll lose their minds when people speak out for the unborn. It's like, so, so one group is valuable, but another group, like, do you see the hypocrisy in that? And, and look, um, this cuts both ways. Like, I have been particularly in the last month as the conversation has intensified around life, I've been particularly provoked to see the way that those who claim to care for the unborn will speak to people that disagree with them, will speak about people that disagree with them, as if those humans don't have the same dignity you're arguing over here. But here's what happens when we try to have heaven without God and the kingdom without the king, is we have the right goals, but we can't get there, and we ultimately undermine our own pursuits. And this isn't a non-Christian problem. This is a human problem. This is a a problem of humanity being broken. I think we all do this to some degree, and we need to really consider for ourselves. Am I being consistent in my view of the value of all humanity, or do I prefer some over the others? Am I lifting one up and not lifting another? Because that's what we're seeing by and large in our world today. And it's so easy to critique the world, but I think we also need to consider our lives. Um, With that said, um, What we need to see in this story is that this idea of trying to have heaven without Jesus, the kingdom without the king, it's impossible. It cannot work. And I don't want you to take my word for that or my thoughts on that. I want you to see that from the Bible because that's what they're trying to do here. They want to have a city of greatness and of safety, great things, kingdom things, but they want it without God and it doesn't work. And here's the reason why. They're sinners. They're sinners. And see, this is what the Babylonians forgot to account for. That even if we have the right ends in mind, um, what broken humans will do, uh, we saw this from the fall onward, 
is that when we have the right desire, we tend to approach even the right desire, like justice and equality and equal rights, we tend to approach the right desire um, in ways that are destructive. And, and here's how you see that. Let's just take an example from this story. They want to build a great city with great walls, with strong walls to keep them safe. Again, safety can be a very good desire. Um, they think that these strong walls will make their utopia possible. But that's incredibly short-sighted. Um, you need to enter into the world of the text and think about this for a moment. If they build these great walls and make their city super secure, what happens to the next generation when people start having more babies and humanity continues to multiply on the earth? It's incredibly short-sighted. Is everyone going to fit in the city walls after a few generations? No. So eventually someone's going to have to go outside of the walls, and here's what's going to happen is if you have all these people speaking the same language, having technological advancement, building this um, city center um, that is really a place of uh, technology, military weaponry, and then you have some people that, uh, because sorry, there's no room for you in the end, that have to go outside of the walls, what's going to happen is you're going to have um, tribes and cultures and peoples on their own who are vulnerable with this massive uh, a center in the middle that is just technologically superior to them. Uh, and, and, and what tends to happen historically when one group of people are technologically superior to the other is one tends to use that technology to um, really abuse and use the other. And so this idea that they want to make their name great, they want to have the city safe, these are great things. But you can't have this technologically advanced people because what they're going to do is they're going to do great evil to the people that have to go outside of the cities. And look, um, if you think I'm reading too much into that, what I would say is you should pick up a history book and read about the nation of Babylon or you should just continue reading in your Bible because this is exactly what ends up happening with Babylon. That Babylon becomes a symbol in the Bible for a nation that will deify their military power. And what Babylon does is they brutally oppress other peoples in the name of their safety and in the name of their greatness, and it's madness. They try to have the kingdom without the king, and it destroys other people, and it ultimately eats their culture from the inside. And I'll just say this, there's a reason that the kingdom of God is still here in the church, but Babylon is long and forgotten about. And some of you are like, Babel what? So you can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have heaven without God. And because the Babylonians give themselves to trying this, it's going to lead to great evil. It's short-sighted. It's a good desire. They're going about it in a destructive way. And God knows this. And so God, because he is good, he's going to respond. We read about God's response in verse 5. It says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only, excuse me, I'm reading verse 6 here. Uh, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. Um, I love that phrase that the, the Lord came down because here, here's what I think happens with sinful, broken peoples. I think we tend to overestimate our capabilities and underestimate who God is. I think so much of the problem in our lives today, um, I could certainly say for myself, is thinking too much of myself and too little of God and relying too much upon myself and not relying on an infinite creator um, who, as we sang in the song earlier, what verse 5 is a celebration of this idea that God is holy, that God is on another level from us. And I, I point this out to you because I think I can't be the only one that struggles with this. Um, that I tend to think too much of me and too little of God. And so every time we come upon a verse like verse 5, I just want to stop as a church and say, Selah, can we reflect on this verse? Because I think this is one for us as modern people we have a hard time with. But what the Bible says is there's creator and creation. And that distinction is farther apart than any distinction that exists between uh, created creatures. So, so take someone like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, like so far richer than me, smarter than me, uh, more interesting. Like, there's a big gap between me and those guys. Um, there's a big gap between me and my seminary professor I referenced earlier. Like, there's so many big gaps between humans. Uh, and, and I hope, right now it's very cool, there's a big gap between me and my daughters and our spelling ability. I hope that one holds. There's lots of distinctions between humans, but what the Bible says is the distinction between God and creation is way bigger than any distinction between any human. 
that, that God and me, it's not like me and Elon Musk or me and Jeff Bezos that I'll probably never get there, but maybe I could work hard at it. No, God's on a whole nother level. And the Bible's try, been trying to free us up to say, you are not the divine, you are not the center of the universe. And I, I say it's trying to free us up because there's freedom when we can realize that. This isn't the Bible taking something from you. This doesn't mean you're not valuable or you're not loved. What it actually should do is when you realize that our greatest achievements are something that God has to come down to, this great city we build, God has to go, oh, I can barely see that. Let me... Let me try to get, I, I have to come down there to check this one out. I can barely see that from up here. When we realize that God is so high and lifted up above our greatest achievements, it doesn't take value away from us. What it says, it should make you more amazed that that God sees you and me as valuable and loved and would send his own son to die to make us his. So I don't say that to take anything away from you. I say that to free you up. One of my life goals that I just want to live into is I want to take God seriously and not take myself so seriously. And I, I think verse 5 can help us with something like that. So, so they build a great tower and God's like, hey, that's a nice set of blocks you have down there. I created time itself. But let me, um, hmm, let me come on down to what you're doing there. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and the, there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So God looks at the Babylonian dream, and he says they will succeed. He, he, he looks at the walls, he says they're going to build great walls, they're going to build great towers, they're going to build great machinery, they're going to build great weapons, they're going to build great tools. He, he sees that technological advancement will continue, that urban advancement will continue. He says they're going to figure out society. They are going to make these things. They are going to continue to make progress because here is the thing. Though God is creator and we're creation and there's a gap there, what the Bible has also told us is God has made us in his image, that we are great. This is the tension of the Bible. Don't think too highly of yourself, but don't think too lowly of yourself either. You're not an animal. You're not a loser. You're made in the image of God to do great things. And when image bearers come together in clusters, that potential for greatness increases. And so God sees this, and it's a lot like Genesis 1, where he looks at the humans and says, I've done a very good job creating them. This is very good. He says, they are very great. They will be able to build this city as they want. The problem is because God has made us very great, but we are broken by sin, what becomes of that is then we do great evil. We do great sin. And so when God says, I see that they're going to succeed, uh, in the one sense, that is saying that he made humanity for greatness. But in, in another sense, that's saying that humanity will do great evil, and God cannot allow that. God loves the world too much to allow that. He doesn't want people to be oppressed. He doesn't want minorities and the small groups outside of the city to be pressed under the boot of the technologically advanced superculture on the inside. And so God rises up to act to defend people. And what he does is he confuses their language. He takes away their ability that we talked about earlier, that ability to communicate with one another, to have intimacy, um, but also to have deep partnership and to work together. He takes it away in an instant. That that ability to speak and relate and understand one another, it's gone. And so all of a sudden, the guy swinging the hammer can't talk to the foreman. And all of a sudden, the foreman can't talk to the supplier. And so um, no one understands each other. And so none of the work's getting done. And I know for some of you, you're like, you just described Tuesday at my job. Nobody understands each other. Everybody's mad at each other. Nothing's getting done. Well, this happened at Babel on a grand scale. Where it wasn't a bad day. This is just how it was. No one could understand each other. And so what the text says is so they, they eventually give up. I, don't, I, I was thinking, I wonder how long it took them to give up this week. Like maybe we'll wake up tomorrow and we'll, we'll, uh, this will all be gone. I don't know how long, but eventually they give up the city building and people move on, and they spread out, and 
Um, the Bible does tell us some people remained in Babylon, and that's where you get the city later on, but it's far fewer people, far lesser evil than would have been if God had not done this. But eventually they, they give up the city building, they move on, we don't understand each other, we're getting nothing done, and they spread out across the earth, and that's how you get the 70 nations represented in Genesis chapter 10, and that's how you get all the nations eventually around the world. That's how we went from one language to many, from one culture to many. And so here's the question that you should be asking. The question you should be asking is, okay, if language came about as a result of God's judgment, of God rising up to prevent evil, are all the languages, the many languages of the world bad? No. That's the right answer, whoever said that. But, but let me say this. It's okay to ask questions of the text. Like, I was studying this week, and I'm like, good, good grief, does that mean languages are bad? Like, you, you need to bring your honest questions to the Bible. Did, did anyone wonder that, at least? Even though we might know the answer, did anybody wonder, like, golly, if that's the origin of languages, I'm not sure. See, see we've got to ask the questions. We've got to grow in our ability to approach the Bible afresh and honestly. It doesn't mean we throw out what we know to be true. Praise God for whoever said no over here. But it does mean I think we bring our questions because we bring our questions to the Bible because truth has nothing to hide from questions. And so I, I, I want to ask you, for whoever said no, enter in with me and let's ask the question, does that mean the languages of the world are bad? Because that's kind of shady origins, right? Like everyone's uh, building together, they're going to create this thing that's going to oppress people, so boom, all the languages come. I, I don't know. I, I kind of think it'd be easier if everyone spoke the same language. Surely I wouldn't have thought I was going to die at a train station in China if that were the case. But I would say the answer is no. It does not mean the languages of the world are bad. I think there is beauty in this. I think this was all a part of God's plan. This is why, this is why God said on page one of the Bible to the first humans, I've made you in my image, so go and fill the earth and cause it to flourish. Spread out, have a great time, and rule and reign on my behalf in this place. This is why the first thing humans are told is you are valuable, you are worthy, and go out and spread my glory to the ends of the earth. God has always wanted humanity to spread out upon the earth. This is why he told Noah and his family last week after the flood, kind of this new creation moment, the first thing he tells them is he says, remember, you're my image bearers. So go and fill the earth, cause it to flourish, have a great time, because God has always wanted diversity, has always wanted his image bearers to spread out all over the planet, because God has known when people go into different regions and places, they're going to look different, they're going to start talking different, they're going to start thinking different not about ultimate reality and truth but about certain things like timeliness some of you are like but it's true that timeliness is next to godliness it's not in the bible and i say that as a guy that's like stressed out when service starts like two seconds late because i forgot to start it on time see so i'm not saying like different cultures can have their truth and you have your truth i'm saying there's capital t truth and then there's a lot of things that are just up to one culture or the other to do it their way or not but there's a lot of room for freedom and play and god's good grace and if we had all stayed in babel we would never know these things and god has always wanted the humans his image bearers to spread out across the nations of the earth and again, it's not just Genesis that says this. If you keep reading the Bible, what you're going to see is God loves the nations of the world. He deeply loves the nations of the world. John 3, 16, maybe the most famous Bible verse, for God so loved the world. That's not just Israel. That's not just Christians. That's not just the church. That's all people. God loves all people. By the time you get to the final book of the Bible, what you will find in Revelation, I believe it is chapter 4. You can look it up this week and send me an email if I'm wrong on that. I should put these things in my notes. But by the time you get to the final book of the Bible, what you'll find is every tribe and every tongue and every culture present at the throne room of God, praising his name for all eternity. This is God's desire, that humanity would spread out and move into new regions and develop new cultures and new languages. Because here, here's what you got to see. There's something about diversity that makes the image of God more present in humanity. That God is so big, no one culture can adequately express what he is like. But as humanity 
this is why he gave us two genders, male and female, because dudes are great, gals are great, but neither one of us can fully show what God's like. We need to come together. And in a similar way, what we're seeing in this text is God wants men and women to spread out across the planet and create new cultures and new languages so that more of his image might be seen. This has always been God's desire from the very beginning. This is how the image of God shines in humanity. That I, I want you to see this from the text, because here's the thing. There are more than 70 languages in the world now. Um, this continued, so, so God did this initial act, but the humans, we kept developing. And, and e- even, we, we have someone in our small group who's from England, and I, I think he might say, like, I don't even speak English, I speak American. So, like, even, we're even continuing to develop. And for some of you, because I'm younger, you're like, you don't even speak American. You speak, like, millennial or something. We continue to develop. It's amazing what humans can do on language. But the point of this text is that the varying language of the world, that's God's idea. He thought it up on page one. He told Noah and our first parents that. And when humanity sinned and rebelled and says, we don't want to spread out, we don't want to grow, we don't want to be diverse, we think our one culture is the penultimate culture in the world, God in his great grace comes and says, I'm going to bring languages anyway. I am going to actually protect the world from your evil by bringing about this great good that I've wanted all along. And he strikes in that moment and causes language to explode and those reverberations are still going from this moment. Um, But the point I want you to see is that different languages and different cultures are God's idea. And though the languages develop from a very broken day, um, what we see in the book of Genesis Uh, is that God uses great evil for great good. Um, So it's great evil that the people in Babylon thought that they could have heaven without the king. It would have led to great oppression. It's not a good thing. But God takes a bad situation and brings from it great good of bringing about different cultures and diversity and languages because this is who our God is. And again, I think this is the great theme of Genesis. I've had so many great conversations with many of you going, page one of the Bible was great. Why did God ever let the thing fall? Couldn't God have just like when the serpent walked in the garden, like just chopped off the serpent's head and paradise forever? And And here's something that Genesis is going to say. By the time you get to the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, I believe it's verse 20, at the very end of the book, I believe we get the thesis statement of the whole book where Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's not just a summary of Joseph's story. I believe that's a summary of the entire book. That what Genesis is arguing is that God is the creator of all things. And that when he created everything, he made everything beautiful and good and right. And there was harmony there. But that beauty has been lost through human and spiritual beings' sinful rebellion. And so that paradise has been lost, but it is not lost forever because what God is at work doing in the world from Genesis 3 on is he is at work taking what Satan and evil people mean for evil and turning it on its head and using it for great good. And that is not only the thesis statement of the book of Genesis. I believe that is the thesis statement of the entire Bible. That somehow the universe will, uh, as one of our girls' children's Bible says, somehow the cosmos will be more beautiful for having once been broken than if it had never been broken in the first place. That God is taking a great evil, like the people in Babylon saying, we don't want to spread out, we don't want other cultures, we want only our culture. And he takes that great evil and he turns it on its head to bring about the many cultures and the many diversities we see in our world today. This is what our God does. He takes what's intended for evil and somehow uses it for good in the flourishing of many people. And look, I know that doesn't solve all your philosophical questions, but I think that should be an encouragement to come back to at the end of the day. That though I might have my questions, here's what I see on repeat. God takes what was meant for evil and uses it for good. So I might not understand how he's at work in this, but here's what he's shown from the very beginning. He takes what was evil and is made for good. And he doesn't just do it at Babel. This is the hope of the entire Bible, and I would submit that this should be the hope of your life as well. This can be the hope of your life. And this is what can ground you when you get that phone call and you go, I can't believe that this would happen. Again, I'm not saying that you don't wrestle, but there should, for the Christian, there is encouragement available. That God sees and he can take what was meant for evil and use it for good. And that is true because God 
This story isn't the only time God comes down. This is true because God comes down again a second time. And he doesn't come down with sarcasm to expose our sin and go, nice tower, fellas, I built the universe. God comes down a second time as we just celebrated yesterday in the form of a baby, in the form of a servant. He doesn't come down to just expose our sin. He comes to deal with our sin problem. We said the reason we can't have heaven without the king is because we're sinful. Well, the king comes again. And when he comes is the person of Jesus. What he does is he comes to remove our sin from us. And by dying in our place for our sins, Jesus Christ reconciles us to the God we were made for, and he reconciles us to one another. And so for those who trust in Jesus, not only are our sins removed as our greatest problem dealt with, but Jesus also sends his spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to live inside of us so that we can participate in building his kingdom as he designed us to in this world right now, even as we wait for Jesus to return and make all things new. And unless that sound like a fairy tale that's too good to be true, we talk a lot about the historical uh, accuracy of the resurrection, and if this were Easter, I'd go more into that. Here's what I want to talk about today. Um, after Jesus rises from the dead, and for 40 days is manifested amongst people as is well documented, he ascends to heaven. You can see the story in Acts chapter 1. And what happens in Acts chapter 2 is after Jesus ascends back to heaven, that when the church gathers in Jesus' name and remembers that forgiveness of sins is available in his name, that the king has come, that we can have the kingdom because the king has brought us in, when the church comes together to remember that truth, the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, falls on the first Christians. And in that moment, people from all of the nations we read about today are present with all of their many languages, and in a moment, they can all understand one another because the Holy Spirit undoes the confusion done at Babel. This is how we know that God is at work in the world because this is a historical reality. When the Holy Spirit fell, the church could understand one another and people from all tribes and tongues heard the gospel on that day and carried it to the ends of the earth. And this is why Babylon is long gone. This is why Rome is long gone. But the church of Jesus Christ persists and won't go away. Because the Holy Spirit, his work in the church, undoes the work of Babel and unites us, hear me, without erasing our distinction. You read Acts chapter 2, you'll see they're still speaking different languages. There's still beauty in the difference there, but somehow they understand one another. This is how cool God is, as he gives us diversity, but somehow gives us the unity and uh, understanding as if we were all speaking the same language. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in the church today. And you might say, well, I've never spoken in tongues and understood someone doing that. But what we see as the New Testament continues is the Holy Spirit's job is to unite the church, not just in language, but to unite us around our singular hope in Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're not all here because we vote the same way, think the same way, approach life the same way, are the same age. Like, we're not here for any of that stuff. We're here because we believe that Jesus Christ is the crucified and risen Lord of the universe who has died to bring us into a kingdom and to work through us to bring that kingdom even now. And even as we build it now, we await for the day when he comes and makes all things new. That's what unites us. That's the Holy Spirit's work in the church. And so here's the thing I want you to see that it's through the work of God in the church, the Babylonian dream becomes possible. Because as the Holy Spirit works in us, what Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, right before that moment where the Spirit falls, is he says, after rising from the dead, which you basically have to listen to whatever comes next, he says, Death is defeated, new life is on the march, so here's what I want you to do. Go into all the nations and tell them what I've done. Make my name great. This is the last thing Jesus says to his church. This is what the Holy Spirit empowers the church to do. That we can make our names great as we make Jesus' name great. See, Jesus takes our desire for goodness, greatness and points it at the proper source. That we're not great when we say, look at how awesome Chad Francis is. Or even, look at how awesome Fair Oaks is. We just sound like Lamech and we sound like a jerk when we do that. But what Jesus does is he enables us to give our lives to say, now look at how great I am. Look at how great Jesus is. Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what he has done. Look at how good he is. 
That is what Jesus has invited his church to be, a truly great community who is truly unified and working together with all of our manifold diversity and are truly safe in the arms of the one who holds the keys to death and eternity in his hands. And it's in him that we can finally fulfill the dream of Babylon. And and so, look, I know it's the last sermon of the year, and I just, if I get one more thing to say to you this year, I want to say this, church. Jesus is really great. There's no one greater you could give your life to, and there's nothing better that you could give your life to than saying with your job, with how you relate to people, with every ounce of who you are, the goodness of Jesus. My desire is that we would be a church that continues to grow in our awe of Jesus and our diversity with one another, that we could say to the community, look how great Jesus is. And my desire for each and every one of you is that when all is said and done on your life, people might gather together and say, that is a man, that is a woman who is truly great because they made me see the greatness of Jesus. And that is the only legacy worth living. Is that the legacy we want to have, church? Okay, then let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are a gracious God. Jesus, we celebrate that you are the one that makes heaven possible. That without you, heaven wouldn't be heaven. If we could somehow have all the perfect relationship between humans without you, it wouldn't be worth it because we still wouldn't have you. You're the one we were made for. You're the king that we long for, and the kingdom wouldn't be the kingdom without you. And so we thank you for being a good God. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we so often look to lesser things to be our king. I pray that you'd forgive me for the ways that I look for greatness and safety apart from you and other things. Forgive me for where I distract from you because I'm trying to find greatness in other things. Jesus, I I ask that Fair Oaks would be a place where the forgiveness of sins is not only a theory to us, but it is a truth enjoyed and a truth lived, and that we might be a church that enjoys your greatness and shouts your greatness to the ends of the earth. I pray that you would uh, work in this church in such a way that our community would look at our diversity, look at all of the different peoples represented here, and say, we can't explain what's going on there, but God must be the bottom line. Maybe that whole thing in Acts chapter 1 about Jesus rising from the dead and sending his spirit to unite a, a diverse people, maybe that whole thing is true. Maybe Jesus is going to bring a true city, the true utopia we long for one day, and maybe he's worth giving our lives to right now. Jesus, I ask that you would make us a great church in that regard. Not to make much of Fair Oaks or anyone here, but to make much of your name. So would you, um, would you make the gospel more real to us this morning? And would you launch us into the new year just more in awe of you and having our lives reverberate with the very purpose for which you created us? I see things in your beautiful name.